Bow with me once more as we prepare now to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Thank you, Lord, that as you have revealed it to us long ago through those who you empowered and inspired by your spirit to write these words, that they are just as relevant today. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to receive what you have for us through your word, that, Lord Jesus, you would become very real to us today as we hear from your word, from your example, from your teaching, and from your call. We pray, Lord, that we would receive your call, not just as something that was issued to 12 men long ago, but that it is still here, calling each one of us today. May we respond as they did, in faith. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak through this word, through your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our sermon series today in the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark. And we are now at part 14, entitled, From Pressing Crowds to Empowered Apostles. I'll begin this morning by asking you a question. How do you feel about crowds? How do you feel about large groups of people? Who here loves them? Anyone? Oh, we got one up here. Great. Who here hates crowds? Oh, there's way more hands. Okay, so I think we have more people. I think in the era of what we've been through these past couple of years, it makes a lot of people even more hesitant about being in crowds. However, we've all, at some point in our lives, been a part of a crowd. So let me ask you, what is the largest crowd that you've ever been a part of? Do you know what the one largest crowd is that you have ever personally been in? Now, I thought about that this week, and I think that the largest crowd that I've ever been a part of was when I went to a Blue Jays game down in Minneapolis, and I was at Minnesota's Target Field, where it was a capacity crowd of just over 40,000 people. So I think that that's the largest crowd that I've ever personally been a part of. However, 40,000 people isn't even close to the largest sporting crowds that have been boasted in North America. And if you think it's for football, you're wrong. It's NASCAR. NASCAR consistently has the biggest crowds. However, with one distinction that it's the Indianapolis 500, which has boasted crowds in excess of 400,000 people. That's a big crowd, 400,000 people for, for a race car race. Now, if you think that's impressive, The Guinness Book of World Records goes way beyond 400,000 people. There I learned that in Brazil in 1994, Rod Stewart played host to the largest ever rock concert with an estimated crowd of 3.5 million people in attendance. Then it goes to Manila, Spain in 2015. Some 6 million people thronged the streets to catch a glimpse of Pope Francis when he came for his papal visit there. Six million people to see the Pope. Also in 2015, the Muslim pilgrimage to Karbala, Iraq, had a record-setting 27 million people in participation. 27 million. But then the single largest crowd in recorded history was the Hindu religious festival of Kum Mela in India in 2013, with an estimated 120 million people 
gathered in one location on the floodplain of the river Ganges with the intent of bathing in its waters in the hopes that they could have their sins washed away and receive immortality from one of their many gods. 120 million people. That's about four times the population of Canada, roughly, or not quite, but that's a lot of people condensed into one place. Now, this demonstrates for us that while people will gather into crowds for many different reasons, entertainment, sports, that kind of a thing, consistently we see that the number one reason that large numbers of people will gather together throughout history, the number one reason is a spiritual pursuit, a spiritual pursuit of healing. Now, as we turn to Mark chapter 3, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. There we begin in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. And we read the exact same thing was also true during Jesus' physical ministry on earth. Verse 7 tells us this. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Now, in these three verses, do you see the emphasis that Mark is placing on the crowd, the size of the crowd, and also the nature of the crowd? This was an aggressive crowd. They weren't passively hanging back. They weren't looking to sit in the back rows. No, they were pressing Jesus. So much so that the sick, it says, were reaching out so that they could touch him. And Jesus had to actually withdraw from them. Now, Mark doesn't give us exact numbers or estimates of how many people were in this large crowd, but in other accounts, we're told where Jesus fed up to 5,000 men, plus an unnumbered amount of women and children. It's fair that we can speculate that this crowd may have easily numbered in that 5,000 number as well. Whatever the case, whatever the exact number, there are so many people that Jesus and his disciples were pressed to the point of being crushed by the crowd, desperate to receive Jesus' healing touch. You see, he had healed so many that people were coming from all over, not just the immediate region. We're told they, they're from far-flung places, hoping to somehow get within proximity of Jesus that perhaps even a touch might heal them. And so finally, Jesus has some fishermen with him, of course. They say, hey, we'll bring the boat around. He gets in the fishing boat, he goes a little ways offshore, and continues to preach to the crowd from the water. Now, while there were clearly thousands of people crowding Jesus that day, we will soon learn as we continue through the Gospel of Mark that the vast majority of these people in the crowd were not truly interested in becoming Jesus' disciples. They were not really that keen about leaving all behind to follow him. Instead, the primary focus of the crowd was in what Jesus could do for them. They weren't there to serve Jesus. They were there to have Jesus serve them. They wanted to see miracles. They wanted their diseases healed. They wanted their demons exercised. 
And because of those things, which Jesus continued to do, he became incredibly popular. His fame spread across the land, and the people just kept coming. However, we also see that Jesus was not interested in popularity. Jesus was not interested in fame, at least for its own sake. We see this as we continue. Verse 11. Whenever the evil, pardon me, whenever an evil spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, "You are the son of God." But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So here we see that the demons, fallen angels, personally who who personally know Jesus from before their rebellion in the glories of heaven. They they have seen Jesus in his unveiled glory. They know who he is, his true identity. And so they try to reveal that secret knowledge of who Jesus really was and is, the Son of God. But each time they attempt to do so, Jesus rebuked them and silenced them. And this is a repeated behavior we also saw. He did this with the demoniac back in the synagogue earlier in our series. Now, quite simply, Jesus did not need the demon's testimony of who he was. He didn't want them to be the ones bearing testimony to his true identity. Now, it begs the question, why? Because in the short term, you would think this would speed up the process, right? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. You would think that this would be to the crowd's benefit if they could hear, well, even the demons know who he is. Maybe this would speed up the process that the people would know who he is and begin to worship him accordingly. But we see Jesus did not want their testimony. And the main reason being that though it may have sped up a short-term process, in the long run, Jesus wanted the people to discover who he truly is, not from testimony of, of fallen angels, of demons, of evil spirits. No, he wanted them to learn his true identity by listening to his words then watching his miraculous signs through the lens of the scriptures. Remember, the prophecies in Old Testament scripture all point to Christ. And so as he's fulfilling the signs, he wants people to put this together, that yes, this is who the scriptures foretold. And finally, Jesus wanted it to be the work, the inner work of the Holy Spirit, to do the convicting, to do the drawing that people would finally come to faith in him and make that good declaration of faith that, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God, just as we see Peter do much later on. Now, we also see in this phrase with the, with the demons that they fell down before him. Now, the way this is phrased in the Greek, there's a, there's a bit of wordplay in the Greek here, but the meaning is that the demons kept on falling down. In other words, this wasn't a one-time action. This was an every-time action that any time a demon-possessed person came into Jesus' presence, they fell down. This kept on happening. So in other words, what Mark is saying is that for the demons, standing before Jesus was and is not an option. Even if they wanted to remain standing in Jesus' presence, they simply could not. They must fall down before him. And this clearly demonstrates the authority and the power of Jesus as truly the Son of God. The demons knew this and had no choice but to humble themselves prostrate in his presence. We continue on to verse 13. 
Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, the word for called in verse 13, the full expansion of that word in the Greek is an urgent invitation to accept responsibilities for a particular task. So it's a calling to a specific task that involves responsibility. This calling also implies a new relationship to the one who is doing the calling. So there's a dynamic at work here that when this calling is given, a new relationship, a new level has been entered when you receive the calling in relation to the one who has called you. So let's say, just for a, a basic example of this, if let's say you have, you have applied for a job, and at this point you've gone through the interview and everything, but it's not yet official. But then you're called back by the employer, the potential employer, who says, we would like to call you into this position. Now, at this point, you've gone through the process. It's time to receive the calling, but you could still say no. And the person calling you will not become your boss. However, if you say yes, you've now entered into a new relationship dynamic. You say yes to the position. Now there's a new dynamic. This person is now also your employer and your boss. You've entered into something new. And so this happened here between Jesus and the Twelve. They were entering into a new relational dynamic. You see, Jesus wanted these specific Twelve men to be more than just a part of the throng, more than just a part of the crowd. He called them into a close and personal relationship with himself so that he might then equip them, empower them, and send them forth as his apostles. In other words, they were to be his ambassadors, the ones who would bring his gospel message to the world, and they in turn would also cause the forces of Satan to flee, for he would designate, defer to them his authority, that like he could cast out demons, they too could now cast out demons. Now, I don't know about you, but when I come to this calling of the twelve, and Jesus specifically calls them, he says, I don't want you to just be casual in my entourage. I have a specific job and a role for you close to me, with me. That's what I desire for my life. And I hope you do as well. I hope you're not just content to be a part of the crowd at a distance who, yeah, Jesus is a healer and he's great, but I'm going to stay back here in the back row. I hope you desire to be closer to Jesus, to be a part of his inner circle, those who he entrusts with great responsibility to do things in his name and in his power because that is what he desires for us to be his gospel ambassadors to the world so that the powers of darkness must flee now if that's what you desire then this passage actually reveals to us the three basic yet absolutely vital steps that must happen step number one is this we must respond to Jesus' call. We must respond to Jesus' call. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Responding to Jesus' call. The first thing we must acknowledge here is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord who makes the call. 
He is the one who initiates the process, and we are the ones who respond. It's never the other way around. We, we don't initiate anything with the Lord. He is always the one who initiates with us. I want you to take note that simply Jesus called and they came. Later on in John 15, verse 16, Jesus reiterates this point that he is the one who does the calling and the choosing, not the other way around. John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, this is very important that we understand the proper order of things in our relationship to the Lord. We are not the ones in charge. He is. We are not the boss. He is. So that means that it is Jesus who does the calling, the choosing, the equipping, the appointing, and the sending. Our only responsibility is how we will respond to Jesus' call. In our text today, we see how those first 12 men responded to Jesus' call with this very simple yet beautiful statement. And they came to him. That's it. No delay. No excuses. No hesitation. No, well, let me finish this first. Then I'll come. They simply came to him. In this moment, they seem to have understood that to be called by Jesus was not a hardship. It was, in fact, an incredible privilege. Now, today, men and women, boys and girls, can still choose to stubbornly refuse to respond to Jesus' call in faith. Many can hear Jesus' calling and yet refuse to bow before him as Lord, stay at a distance, and not bow. But inevitably, the day will come, the scriptures tell us, when at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. However, in his great mercy, the Lord yet desires that we bow before him today, not by force, but willingly. For that is the right response of the heart that comes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God that the ear that hears his gracious call to come. What a privilege to be called by Jesus to come and then to simply humbly respond in faith, to bend our knee before him. And as we go back to the demons, consider that the demons, while they must fall down before Jesus, and we see that their motivation is it is in sheer terror. And we see them cry out, are you here to to, to cast us into the abyss before our time? They are terrified of the judgment to come. And so they bow, trembling in fear. However, we are given the gracious invitation to willingly come before him. To fall down before Jesus in worship and in full submission to his lordship over our lives. And what an incredible difference that makes when we bow our lives before him. Now, who here has ever watched the movie or read the book Ben-Hur? Has anyone seen that movie, watched, or, see, yeah, watched watch that movie? Great movie, the classic chariot scene in the arena, all of that. Well, that original story was written by a Civil War general named Lew Wallace. And Wallace was raised in a Christian home, but he was completely indifferent to Jesus or faith, 
It just never grasped a hold of him, and he grew up into his adult years, never committing his life to the Lord. However, he was an ambitious man, and he rose through the military ranks quickly. Along the way, he also became somewhat of a prolific writer in his spare time. One of his writing projects dealt with the one story from Scripture that fascinated him since he had been a small boy, and that was the story of the Magi visiting Bethlehem. And so he wrote this short story, and after his first draft, he put the manuscript in a drawer, and he forgot all about it. Well, it was some three years later that he was on a train trip to Indianapolis, where Wallace met the famed agnostic of that era named Robert Ingersoll. Now, Wallace and Ingersoll got into a conversation, and in the course of it, Ingersoll was asked by Wallace, Do you believe in God? To which Ingersoll had replied, No. And then he had gone on to argue his position for some two hours of why he did not believe in God. When the men arrived finally in Indianapolis, Wallace's thoughts were now in turmoil. How strange, he thought, that it took the arguments of an unbeliever to suddenly shake something up inside of him, stirred him up to think about, is God truly there? Is he real? Is the Bible true? At the end of the conversation, Ingersoll had challenged Wallace if he could prove that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, then he would reverse his position and he would believe. And so Wallace decided he would take up the challenge to prove, if he could, that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he, be- he began by expanding his earlier story about the Magi's visit to include Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, being a meticulous researcher, he began to read and reread the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And during this process, General Wallace finally became fully convinced that Jesus truly is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and more than that, his own Savior that required something of him, a response. And so he knew finally that he could no longer remain indifferent. And so he committed his life to Jesus Christ As his Savior and Lord, he bent his knee before him and made the good confession of faith. And we see the impact in his life and in his legacy. So how about you? Have you willingly bowed before Jesus? Have you made the good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is your Lord? My great hope is that you have. But if you have not, I encourage you to do so today. He is calling. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me and I will give you rest. That is his call. Come to Jesus. Don't hang back. Don't stay in the back row. Come to Jesus. He is calling. The response is yours to make. And now we come from the first step. We must respond to Jesus' call to the second step. And that is to be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Verse 14 tells us, He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. Now, this is the single most fundamental, yet often overlooked aspect of the Christian life. And that is simply being with Jesus. The main reason for this is that unlike those first twelve disciples were being with Jesus... 
was quite straightforward because it meant physically being with him. He was walking this earth in flesh and blood, so being with him meant being in physical proximity to him. However, we today, we have the challenge that we cannot physically see Jesus. However, the Bible tells us that Jesus is with us by the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus was referring to when he told his disciples right before his physical departure into heaven. He said to them, Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And earlier he had explained that this would be done by him sending the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with them and in them. And so this means that each of us must learn to be with Jesus, not physically, but spiritually. And this happens through the spiritual disciplines of spending time in the Bible, meditating on its truths and praying in the Spirit, and spending time with Jesus in this spiritual way. And so, this, of course, is slightly more challenging than doing something physically with someone. If you say, hey, to my friend, let's go for coffee, you expect to physically be together. And it's different with Jesus, and yet it is no less real. And so, while in this way it differs our being with Jesus from those first 12 disciples, It is the same in that it must be an everyday thing. Not just a once a month or even a once a week visit. Hey, how are you doing? I'll see you next week. To be with Jesus is to be an everyday walk with the Lord. And so this means we must deliberately devote time to being with him every day. And this word devote is where we get our term devotions from. We devote time every day to being with Jesus in a deliberate way. There's an often told story you may have heard before where an area of Africa some Christian missionaries had gone to and had spent a great deal of time evangelizing the people there. And it had finally taken hold and and the church was beginning to grow rapidly. New believers were being added and they were becoming very just zealous in their devotional life of being with Jesus. And so, they would often take time to go out somewhere into nature to be alone with him, to do their their prayer time and their devotion time in the Word. And so after some time, their spots would become well-worn as well as the paths and the trails they created to get to their private spots. And so over time, it began to become clear that this was so-and-so's trail and that was so-and-so's trail to get to their favorite spot. But then they would begin to notice that if grass began to grow over someone's trail, that they were neglecting their time with the Lord, their devotional time. And so over time, what began to happen when this happened, that they would see someone's trail was being overgrown, they would gently come aside their fellow believer with the nudge to say, the grass grows on your path, brother. And so the encouragement to us is, Do not allow the grass to grow on your path. Let your path to spending time with the Lord be well-worn. Let it be a daily thing, not, not weekly, not monthly. Let it be a part of your daily life. Open his word. Listen to his voice. Pray and listen. Talk to him about the things that he puts on your heart. And learn to enjoy that regular time being with him before you go out and try to do things for him. So often this is where we fail. 
We see the later part of the disciples, the apostles, being sent out to do mighty things for the Lord, but we skip that all-important first part of being with him. To be sent out without having spent time with him is to skip the most vital step of all. John 15, verse 5, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In his book, R.A. Torrey wrote of this, We are too busy to pray, and so we are too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. Now, it might surprise you to learn that Tory wrote that about a hundred years ago. But it remains just as true, I think, and descriptive of many Christians and churches today. My friends, if we are too busy or too distracted to spend time with Jesus then we are just spinning our wheels if we try to go out and do things for Jesus. God's power comes not from more frantic frantic going and doing and activity. God's power comes from that time alone with him. And it is from there that we are sent out. Which leads us to our third step, which is be sent by Jesus. So first we respond to his call. We spend time with him. And then we are sent by him. Verses 14 and 15. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now for a lot of Christians, they're not sure which would be more scary. Driving out demons or preaching. Which one do you think would be more scary for you? Driving out demons or preaching? I think a lot of them would be like, ah, it's pretty close. Now, while yes... On our own, both of those things should rightfully cause our knees to shake. When we are sent out in the authority and power of Jesus, however, we can do both of those things with boldness and without fear. Also, I don't want you to dismiss this word preach as only something that applies to pastors or people in my position up behind the pulpit. This word preach simply means in the Greek to proclaim or announce something. It was used of the king's heralds, who would go before the king to announce his message or that he was coming to the people. Now, the heralds, or the the people who would go to proclaim the message, they never had to come up with their own message. They simply had to repeat what they had already been told. So while, yes, I as a pastor, I come and stand in this pulpit, I don't have to come up with my own message. I simply repeat what God has already told me through his word. And so it is the same for us. As we go out, we have the gospel message. We don't have to make up something new. It is the same gospel today as it was yesterday, and it will be the same gospel of Jesus Christ again tomorrow. And as we go out, God, by his spirit, he adds his blessing to the word as we are faithful and obedient to go in his name and with his message. You see, this doesn't just happen here in this setting. It happened earlier this morning in our Sunday school classes. It'll happen later on this week in our youth groups. It's already happening and will happen in the Christian school and in other small groups as they meet in people's homes and study the Bible. It will happen in a very small, intimate setting around supper tables as families gather and have those little conversations every day about the Lord. 
and as parents deliberately lead their children in discipleship. This proclaiming, this preaching happens in a myriad of ways, not just from this pulpit. And so if we limit preaching the gospel to only this pulpit, then we are severely undermining what Jesus intends for all of his disciples to be engaged in in some way. And remember again, you don't have to come up with your own message. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is timeless. It does not change. It does not even need to be dressed up with some great eloquence or oratory skills. For remember, we must depend not on our powers of persuasion, but on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to work through us, through his word, to do the work in the hearts and minds of the listener. One well-known preacher of a previous generation named John Stott, he learned this lesson when he was invited once to preach at the University of Sydney in Australia. Now, John Stott was known for having this great booming preaching voice, great inflection, and great powers of persuasion. And so everyone was excited to hear this dynamic speaker. But when he arrived in Australia, he completely lost his voice, an acute case of laryngitis. And he described the experience as follows. What can you do with a missionary who has no voice? We had come to the last night of the evangelistic campaign. I was to be the keynote speaker. The students had booked the big university hall. A group of students gathered around me, and I asked them to pray, as Paul did, that this thorn in the flesh might be taken from me. But we went on to pray that if it pleased God to keep me in a state of weakness that I would rejoice in my infirmities in order that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so as it turned out, I had to get within one inch of the microphone just to croak the gospel. I was unable to use any inflection of voice to express my personality. It was just a croak in monotone. And all the time we were crying to God that his power would be demonstrated through my human weakness. While I can honestly say that there was a far greater response that night than on any other night of the entire campaign. I've been back to Australia ten times now, and on every single occasion, someone has met me who comes up and says, Do you remember that night you lost your voice and you croaked into that microphone? That was the night I was saved. You see, God doesn't need special eloquence to reach lost people with the gospel. He just needs a willing voice that's been with Jesus, empowered by him, with a dependency on him, and he will do the saving. Lucy Swindoll once wrote, A friend of mine was caught in an elevator during a power failure. At first there was momentary panic as all seven strangers talked at once, Then my friend remembered the tiny flashlight he had in his pocket. When he turned it on, the fear dissipated. During the 45 minutes they were stuck together in that elevator, they told jokes, laughed, and even sang a few songs. The Bible says we are that flashlight. Put the candle on its candle stand. Let it shine for all to see. And just as that flashlight draws power from its batteries, we draw our power from the Lord Jesus. As light, we dissipate fear, we bring relief, we lift spirits, and we point others to Christ. We don't even have to be a big flashlight to be effective, we just have to be on. 
Now, as I issue this challenge this morning, I know what some of you are thinking in the back of your minds. Because I've had all these same thoughts myself, and maybe I'll put voice to some of your thoughts right now. Something like, but pastor, that's all easy for you to say. But I can't do any of that stuff. I'm not gifted in that. I'm not qualified. Well, in reply to that, let's take a quick look at those first 12 men that Jesus called. Remember, these are the 12 men that he wanted, that he specifically chose when he called. This wasn't haphazard. It was by design. How many of those 12 men were especially gifted or qualified? Let's take a quick look. Verse 16. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, Peter means rock, but let me tell you that Peter was no rock at this time. A simple fisherman. He was brash, reckless, impulsive, and in the end we see that he was a coward to boot. He denied his Lord three times. We go on. Verse 17, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now these two brothers, also simple fishermen, had the twin problem of pride and anger, always ready to call down fire from heaven on those sinners. They were ready to kick people out. They were ready to fight for top position. Who gets to sit at your right and left hands? So here we see again, very flawed men. Verses 18 to 19 continue. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot with the byline, who betrayed him. Now in this group, we have Matthew, a despised tax collector who we saw in an earlier sermon, cheated people out of their money and betrayed his own people for money. He comes alongside with Simon the Zealot, which means he was a part of the Jewish group of rebels organized to overthrow Rome by force if necessary. And of this scenario, Wearsby said, it would have been interesting to know how Simon the Zealot responded when he first met Matthew, a former employee of Rome. I bet there were fireworks. So let me ask you again, do you still think you are not qualified? Let me tell you, by human standards, those first 12 men were not qualified in the least. In fact, I would venture to say most of you in this room are more qualified, at least in education, than they were. But remember, Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called, those whom he chooses. And so today, I urge you, answer Jesus' call. Be with Jesus. And be sent out by Jesus in his power and with his message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an incredible privilege to be called by you. And it is not an impersonal calling. It is very personal. For you call by name. And I thank you so humbly, Lord, that you called me long ago. And that by your spirit, you worked in my heart that I could respond, yes, to your call to be sent out. And so, Lord, I thank you that there are so many before me in this congregation today who have done the same. And so I pray, Lord, for those of us who have received your call, continue to encourage and strengthen us as we live it out, Lord, that we would not neglect that time to be with you, to spend daily time with you in that secret place with you alone in prayer, for it is there we find the sweetness of your presence as well as the power 
to go out to do what you call us to do. And then finally, Lord, as we do go out, give us courage. For, Lord, there are so often things that cause us to be fearful as we go out. But remember that it is you who caused the demons to cry out in fear. And so what do we have left to fear if even the enemy must fall down before you? And so we thank you that it is the same authority that you gave those first 12 with which you also so humbly and graciously bestow us with, Lord, that we can go out in your name with your gospel message like a mighty army. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to respond in faith to your call, to be with you, and to be sent out by you. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.